Today on Foodstuffs. We talk about how DNA testing can prove you're eating what you paid for. The question is, is this a cost that you care enough to incur? And if you don't want to pay for it, does anybody? We want this, but are we willing to pay enough? The people that actually decide that indirectly, I mean, we decide it for what we're willing to pay. But you know that the companies that I've been chasing, the production companies and the retailers, there's no way in the world that they would not take on these services if it didn't help their bottom line to move more product. This is Jeff Lumby from Stereosense, and you're listening to Foodstuffs. Welcome to Foodstuffs, a podcast about food and culture and their intersections. I'm Jessica Walker and I'm Brian Coleman. Brian, I have to say that when you first brought me this story, I was a little bit skeptical. You may recall, you know, my stance, like if something is edible, we should eat it, right? Yeah, of course. When I first looked at the story, I sort of went into thinking the way you were thinking, thinking about the benefit to you and I, the consumer. Uh, and certainly some part of the marketing of this technology is aimed at the consumer and is aimed at outing meat and seafood that isn't what it claims to be. Like tilapia that claims to be snapper, for example. Exactly. And, you know, when there are big chains like Red Lobster uh, who decide to put something on the menu like Chilean sea bass, which is very expensive, they need to make sure that what they're selling is indeed Chilean sea bass. However, what came out of the discussion is recognizing that this technology may be less important to consumers and more important to growers. And that's where this all begins to stick. Yeah, when I spoke to Jeff Lumby, who is the owner of Stereosense, which is a DNA food testing company, uh, he told me about a long-standing scam that's uh, occurred at the U.S.-Canadian border involving imported American chickens. And the role Stereosense is playing to stop it, right? That's right. So before we get into it, I think we need to understand a few things. One of the things we need to understand is the difference between spent hens or spent fowl and broiler chickens or, or roaster chickens. Right. And that is kind of part and parcel with this whole discussion. So why don't we listen to your conversation with Jeff Lumby, president of Stereosense, um, and kind of come in on this point where he's discussing the difference between spent hens versus broiler chickens. So a roaster or a broiler is the term for the chickens that we eat most of the time, a whole chicken or pieces. Um, and uh, the term spent hen or fowl is a term given to the mothers that produce the eggs that hatch and become the chickens that we eat. And spent hens do enter the food chain. They're important as parts of chicken McNuggets, uh, not, not just McDonald's, but any sort of nuggets or patties. Uh, deli meats, stews, pot pies, they're an important component More like of that. The, the processed chicken that you're gonna... Exactly right, exactly right. Chicken product. Exactly. And it's not just a cheaper way to get rid of this meat that's a bit different in texture. Those birds live longer than the ones, the right. broilers that we eat. But it's actually important for consistency to hold things together. And um, I don't think any of those products would taste as good if they were made with just pure broiler breast meat or dark meat. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And is there anything uh, from a health standpoint or a nutritional standpoint, is there anything that is that is different about that that chicken before it gets processed? Yes and no. I mean, uh, spent hen meat is a bit tougher, um, not as um, not as tender, I guess. And 
So, but that quality difference, for sure, if we, we, if we bought a whole chicken um, at a grocery store, we brought it home, we roasted it, and it was a spent hen instead of a broiler, we'd be, um, we'd be upset. That's a bit chewy. If you're bringing it home, and through this journey myself learning about the chicken industry, if you, um, there are a lot of uh, chefs and people in the food industry that specify, I do want spent hens to make this giant batch of soup because it makes a better tasting soup. Right. So there is a quality difference. It depends on what your purpose is. Yeah. Yeah, but for sure, in, math, in the vast majority of cases, when we want chicken, we want broiler chicken to eat. It's more about not that this is a, this is an inedible product, but you want to get what you you pay for. Get what you right? pay for, yeah. So can you talk about that maybe that that from that perspective of your your major clients when, like, say maybe it's somebody that's purchasing um, a lot of meat or a lot of, of seafood. Mm -hmm. How before this existed, how much of an issue was this about? I don't know if you would call it meat or seafood fraud or yeah. what, what the term is. How much of an, an issue was that? I mean, the fish, the seafood industry is famous, as I learned, for, and people say it, it's a fishy business for a reason. And I think there was a fair amount of substitution of species. Um, and people in the industry kind of knew it. And I think in the end, um, those companies that have been selling us, the consumers, fish for a long time, they basically know that unless there's an, you know, a glaring example of something that's really wrong, most of us are kind of okay. You know, if it's a high-end restaurant, you want to make sure it is what it is, but right. for most of us, it's okay. So, I, you know, I think it was an issue in the, in the seafood industry, and there are other things besides substitution, like they put extra uh, ice when they freeze the fish to okay. increase the weight, and then on the other hand, there's a legitimate reason for that that's called glazing. It actually helps preserve the, f the, the freshness of the fish through freezing, but mm -hmm. too much ice is obviously, you're pumping up the volume. So there are all those things. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and DNA testing can actually you can you can see all these kinds of things with the, the kind of testing that you do. Absolutely right. Uh, so um, there are many ways to tell one species from another using DNA testing, um, and uh, but but luckily you know right here in Canada at Guelph University the technique of DNA barcoding which was created just found a nice signature re uh, region within our DNA that no matter what species you look at, different kinds of fish or birds or mammals, that, that signature is always going to say, yes, this is um, a chimpanzee versus a lowland gorilla, or this is a seagull versus a sparrow. Right. Or, Will it tell, can it tell regional specificity? Um, and what are the limitations to that? Because I know some people get really uh, caught up on, oh, this is Maine lobster, or this is, you know what I mean? Right, uh, and that's that's a very cool area too. It's, it, provenance is the industry term for okay. that. Where exactly did it come from? Uh, in some cases, uh, DNA testing can tell where something has come from, but not just in and of itself. So the technique always relies on, you have to have characterized the population of individuals from where that sample came from. Right. And if you've got a database that shows that that signature region or if you're, if you're looking at regional, can I tell where this fish came from or where this chicken came from, you're now moving away from that DNA barcode signature region. You're now looking at different, police, different parts of the genome to, to find the differences. And so you can build a database um, that can tell regional differences, but that's a fair amount of work. And we've yeah. done that, actually. There's a great example, the Patagonian toothfish, or okay. Chilean sea bass, is a very famous, tasty fish that uh, the population crashed. It's fished around, primarily around... Um, the Antarctic Circle off the bottom of Argentina, okay. bottom of Australia. 
And you can, it's interesting, if you go to Loblaws, you can buy it. It is the most expensive fish. I think it's like 30 bucks per pound. It is crazy. Like that's more expensive than right. wild salmon or anything by a factor of two. And Red Lobster came to us and they said, look, we want to put Patagonian toothfish back on the menu. Uh, we realize it's an endangered fish, but the Marine Stewardship Council, which is the granddaddy of, you know, Okay. Uh, ethically or sustainably sourced seafood endorsement organizations had sanctioned a couple fisheries in the Southern Ocean that could, under the right rules, uh, be used as uh, sampling for or sourcing for Patagonian toothfish. So uh, Red Lobster wanted to source their t uh, toothfish from there, but they had seen in the literature that some guys had published some paper that said even fish supposedly taken from an MSC certified fishery might not actually be from that fishery based on some DNA research that they had done. Okay. And oh, so they yeah. came to us and said, look, we, we want to do the right thing. And we certainly don't want to get caught with our pants down. Yeah. Can you do a little bit more background work? Here's a bunch of uh, toothfish that are guaranteed from the fishery and some that are suspect. Can you start building a database so we can understand more exactly where these fish are coming from? Right. So, I mean, it makes sense. You need you need that sample to work with to say this is this is the baseline or this is and put that in your database so you have something to compare well said against. you need the baseline without yeah. without that baseline to compare against it's just an individual so maybe we could talk a little bit about the, the technology and um, how it was developed and what's actually happening how how does this work I mean I know we can probably get very technical maybe we can get slightly technical Right. Um, where's the best place to start? Um, well, University of Guelph. Yeah, let's start with the DNA barcoding. So let me just try and back up a bit. As, as, as we know, um, we all have a genome in us, and it's different. There are a lot of similarities, but there are differences. And if you can uh, find a part of the genome that is collecting as a natural background rate a certain number of mutations, that uh, might be signature-like for a given species or a given region or any kind of given population, if you can find that set of mutations and characterize it, that can be used as a means of identifying. So the group at Guelph, University of Guelph, was led by a guy called Paul Hebert uh, uh, for the DNA barcoding. But, and so that was great what they did, but, but they were still standing on top of this already existing giant platform of, we've all watched Law and Order, right. friends, I mean, you can tell yes. all that kind of thing. So they just simply figured out a simpler, repeatable way to at least tell species. Not provenance, which we were talking about earlier, but species, which is still okay. a useful thing for a lot of industries beyond food. Right. Um, and so it was, was it specifically around seafood at the time? Because that seems to be the most um, relevant or area. It, it, that's a good question. So they have built a database, and in collaboration, there was a sort of a parallel team in the States, and then it, it caught fire around the world, and everybody started contributing whatever their favorite genus or species okay. was, whether it was birds or whales. Okay, yeah. And so that's now a collaborative database. I think it's called the Barcode of Life, where there are a couple of competing uh, resources you can go to. And there's always GenBank. Okay. GenBank is the granddaddy of all genetic information for humans and increasingly for animals, bacteria. Okay. Um, so I think there were some people in the Guelph group who were passionate about fish. I think Paul Bear's passion was butterflies, I believe. Um, I, could, I could be wrong about that. By trade, he was uh, a taxonomist, which would make sense why these mm -hmm. guys got into it, because taxonomy, you're just looking at the appearance of animals, or what's called the phenotype instead of the genotype. What do they look like? And that's, a, that's an art and a science in and of itself. And so they were saying, 
you know, there are a lot of difficult cases. This kind of looks like a seagull, or is it a different species, or is it a, a beaten-up seagull? Wouldn't it be nice if there was something that was you know, unequivocal right. to say the species? Yeah. This is exactly what it is. Yeah. Okay, so that's interesting, but I want to now talk about it from a, a business standpoint. Mm-hmm. So, like you've mentioned, uh, big restaurant chains like Red Lobster would be a client. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to ensure that they can tell their customers that this is this. Right. Right. Like I said, they don't get caught with their pants down later. Is that the main market that you see for this? What is, what are, and what are the markets? Is this ever something that uh, would reach, I mean, I guess it touches a consumer level. Um, but what do you see the, the market is for this kind of, uh, this kind of service? This kind of within food. Yeah? yeah. Within food. The best application should be ensuring that we get what we're paying for, right? I want to get this this species. I want to get this kind of healthy food. Um, but, you know, I've been at this for uh, six years, and I think uh, there are some businesses, including mine, that make a half-decent go of it, but I've seen a lot come and go um, on this rising tide of, let's make sure there isn't horse meat in our hamburger, and, oh, my gosh, we all got to know about this and be right. vigilant, or, all, or we're going to get poisoned or eat things against our beliefs. And my opinion is that um, there isn't that much of a market when that is the business driver behind it. Okay. Ultimately, because I think the ultimate numbers of us that are willing to pay the increased price required to keep all that DNA vigilance in place, never mind the specific production techniques required to produce that food, I think numbers of us that are willing to pay that extra money are fewer than we'd like to believe. I think it makes get good headlines. Yes. Um, and some of us do shop at specialty stores, but the vast majority of us just want to make sure that it is fresh and it's tasty. And if it's this kind of sea bass versus that kind of snapper, it really doesn't matter. Right. So is that a case of, I mean, and, and we've talked about this before on the show about people maybe not wanting to put their money where their mouth is enough and not wanting to say, okay, I am willing to do it. Or is it just a matter of saying, I'm a little concerned, but I'm not really that concerned. I don't really see this as, is this a matter of maybe the cost not matching the uh, concern or paranoia or whatever you may call it? I, I, I think so for sure. That's yeah. a factor. I mean, we're all, we all have financial pressures and it's nice. And if you sit down at the end of six months and you're thinking, do you know, where are our savings? It's like, maybe we should stop shopping at that luxury place and, and take a hit right. or, or we're selective how we do it. A more skeptical answer um, and, you know, sort of showing more of my bias is that I'm skeptical of how really discerning we are. Right. Okay. I, you know, I think there's so much to, uh, and food companies know this, right? This is what packaging and presentation is all about. I mean, yeah. we see something, we've paid a premium price. We think we can taste that difference. Mm-hmm. We swear we can taste that difference. But I'm skeptical. And, I, and the best story that tells us, back when I was in university, I lived with a bunch of guys, and we fancied ourselves beer connoisseurs. And for some reason, let's do a scientific experiment. We got some microbrewery beers. We got some sure. big company. We got uh, Labatt's Blue, okay. Molson Canadian. Yeah. And we poured them out into the solo cups and hit it and did blind taste tests. And so the brutal news was... Um, not only could we not tell which was microbrewery beer, we really couldn't tell which was which. I mean, there are obvious examples of, you know, a, a really bitter, hoppy thing versus sure. a lager and stuff like that. But 
you know, assuming some half decent controls, uh, we couldn't tell which was which. And moreover, when we asked each other, so sip, you know, taste them all again, at least pick your favorite three. Right. Guess what? Blue, Canadian. And we're that's in the not top by hits. accident, really. Of course not. You know, of course not. They've got the money to make sure that formula is just right. It's just right. And so yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical of, of some of these things. And um, I get into trouble for saying that with people who swear, no, no, I get an allergic reaction when I don't have sure. this or that. And I think that's part of that, that market is when there's an allergy. Yeah. If we're talking about an allergy. Okay. That's something that we're taking more seriously. That's something that the Canadian government is now taking more seriously. We were talking last year about how um, there has been some labeling watchdogs that have sort of drifted away and it's sort of gone to more of a tell us if you think there's something wrong, then we'll look into it kind of fashion. But they are starting to clamp down more on food allergies mm -hmm. and looking now more, like as you mentioned, at uh, foods that are prepared in a certain way that are important to people's faiths. Right? Yeah, for Halal, sure. All kosher foods, yeah. for, for example, right? So they're starting to pay a little bit more attention to that. But soul versus haddock, haddock oh. versus cod, right? Roaster chicken versus spent fowl. How discerning are people? How much do people, uh, both from a moral standpoint and a actual taste standpoint, how much do they, can they tell the difference? And how much do they care when they see the, the price difference? Right. And it, I think we have a lot of people that would say, and hey, we're just north of Leslieville now. There's a lot of people that would say, oh, come on, I'm a 100-kilometer diet. Here. Yeah, yeah, I only yeah. support local farmers. Do you think that this is a case where um, perhaps, again, um, our words don't match our actions? I, I do. I mean, I... There's different Would you ways put that to interpret in the same ca category of caring about um, DNA tested or certified food versus organic versus commercially processed. Yeah. Is it the same? Would, would you put those categories together? I would. I would. I I think the question is interesting because it assumes that a bunch of us have been committed to do something and we've sort of planned ahead and judged what we can do and then we find out that we can't, so we change our opinion. No one likes that idea. Right. I think part of the real answer is that we overestimate how many people who are actually willing to try to shop that way in the first place. Right, okay. There's a vast majority of people in this city that do shop at, at Costco or at Walmart, and they're not necessarily cash-strapped people. I think, you know, we can see a busy Leslie St Leslieville store or another posh uh, part of the city and think that, wow, this is like 50% of the population. It's not. Mm -hmm. You start doing a really quantitative, properly, statistically, you know, planned out study of who's buying what in this city at what prices, I think it would be humbling to find out how many people buy in a more, hum in a more humble way. So what does this mean about your business? Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah, like, yeah. We're talking about, you, you're, here you are saying um, <clears throat> that we're not sure that people really care about this, and even if they do, they're not, probably not willing to put spend the extra money to make sure that it is certified. What does this mean for your business? How come you're not getting out? Right. And I've contemplated it many times. Okay. Um, and, and, and it's an important thing to, I think, to consider the ultimate uh, control point in that statement of we want this, but do, are we willing to pay enough? The people that actually decide that indirectly, I mean, we decide it, but what we're willing to pay. 
But you know that the companies that I've been chasing, the production companies and the retailers, there's no way in the world that they would not take on these services if it didn't help their bottom line to move more product. Right. right. So they are actually the ultimate asset test of knowing what we want. They know. They will try different things. And if the product doesn't move, they've got their answer. And so that's where I've taken my sort of asset test was if people are not willing to pay for this test, obviously they're not losing business because of it. That's the other way to say it. If they were losing business, they would, they would, they would, do, they would do something about it. Yeah. So um, on that front, uh, the majority of our business has come the same technology, the same issue, but a completely different business driver. And so if the concern from the company selling the food is making the customer feel happy about they're getting what they are, that's always going to be there, and, and, and it does happen. And when we can see these successful lines like um, Blue Menu or Sustainably Served, you know, those things are there, and people feel good about those things, right. and they do buy it. But the actual money required to actually do the analysis, the analytical methods to confirm, that cost bucks. So, uh, yeah, contemplated getting out of the business several times, and then about three, four, four years ago, uh, the chicken industry came to us with a problem of differentiating, as I said, between the spent hands and the broilers. The driver there is not so much us finding out whether or not we're getting what we want. We really haven't known, and probably we never will know, depending right. on how many people listen to this, that it's yeah. an issue. Yeah. The issue was a trade issue, right? And so uh, chicken production in Canada, like dairy, is a protected market. It's not free. You, as If you want to become a chicken producer, you have to purchase the rights in terms of quota to be able to do so from the governing body, which is the Chicken Farmers of Canada. So because of that, our chickens are more expensive than free market produced chickens from, guess where, the States. So in states, they can produce chickens just as high quality as what we do here, but for a lot less money. That's a whole other talk about what's that's done to the chicken industry and some of the chicken producers live different, you know, hard lives and stuff like that. So there are arguments for and against whether or not we should continue to have a protected market here in, in, in Canada. That's a different talk. But the topic here was that with that price differential between Canadian and foreign produced chickens, there's a huge incentive for unethical Canadian chicken providers to get that cheaper chicken into Canada without paying the tariff, because there's a hefty tariff up to 300% that's slapped onto foreign chickens. Uh, there's a small percentage that is allowed to come in tariff-free, but that quota is used up very quickly. Mm -hmm. If you can figure out how to get the chickens in here and sell them, you can make tremendous profit. And with that, um, with that arbitrage opportunity in place, the uh, the scam that's been running for many years, in and this test that we've produced and or Trent has produced, is uh, hopefully going to sort of open this wide open. The spent hens that do come across the border are not part of that quota system. So if you okay. so a certain yeah. number of spent hens can go either way across not a certain number any no, any quantity of spent hens can cross the no border tariffs. no tariffs or anything because we know that that's going to a different product if it's real broiler meat the, the chickens that live for six weeks and then were killed at the prime of their plumpness right. and health um, you absolutely must pay tariff and so what people figured out how to do was if you want to bring an illicit or a tariff-free shipment of American chicken into Canada, just change the paperwork and say, well, it's not broiler meat, yeah, it's spent hen. Yeah, stopping you, obviously. Okay, so you're saying this scam has gone on 
for forever. It's been going on for a long time. Oh, it's spent hand. It's spent hand. Don't worry about it. Let it go. And then once it gets in here, we say, no, 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 it's a... That's right. So the border people would open up the back of the truck and say, looks like chicken to me. Yeah. Close the door, off you go. Do these chickens look like they've hatched eggs? I don't know. Don't know. What do they look like? Right. I mean, if they were actually live chickens, you could put any industry right. expert down there that could look okay, at them and see the difference. Yeah, but okay. they're, they're, they're carcasses or their pieces or what have you, so yeah. you can't tell. So you're exactly right. Once the truck crosses the border, the paperwork has changed and said, what, this really is broiler meat. And now you're realizing massive profits. Okay. So then there uh, lies an opportunity for a business like yours. Absolutely. To maybe perhaps... And who would you work with then? Would you work with the government or would there be, again, Chicken Farmers of Canada or somebody like that that might enlist you to say, we need you at the border. We need your technology at the border to be testing these chickens as they come across. You, you, you're exactly right. So it's it, mul multiple partners have been uh, involved in creation of this. And the uh, original people that drove it uh, were Canadian chicken producers that um, realized that they were losing sales and right. production because somewhere all of this chicken was coming in and people were buying it instead of theirs because yeah, it's cheaper. So the Chicken Farmers of Canada is a national lobby group. Um, they helped sponsor, excuse me, helped sponsor the creation of the test. And it's a very brave, sexy technology transfer story in my opinion. I mean, this is a space I've been in, right? Tech mm -hmm. transfer, how do we get novel, cool technology that is in its raw bench top form in Canadian universities and actually apply it to something that's beneficial to the Canadian people, to our, to our businesses, what have you. Right. And that's a very slow, difficult process and another long talk about how inefficient it can be. This was beautiful. The industry came direct to me. They yeah. knew me. I was partnered with Trent. We all met. They said, we need to solve this problem. The researchers said, I think we can do this kind of test. They, of course, overestimated how confident they were. I translated that to the industry and said, 50% chance this is going to fail. Right. Are you still willing to sink a whole lot of money into punting that we can make the test? Yes, we are. They punted. They paid. Trent was great to create the test. Um, so those were the people involved there. Now, when you mention the government, yes, they're involved. The ultimate purchaser of this test that's been created has to be the federal government and specifically the uh, Border Services Agency. And to some extent, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency is involved as well, although they're not the people that are enforcing it. And so we've been lobbying the government to say, please use this test, solve right. this problem. Uh, they've been turning us away for a long time. Finally, recently, um, something has changed. I don't know if it's the change in government. Uh, that was certainly part of it. Um, you also heard last fall there was the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade talks negotiations okay. were going on. Yeah. Those concluded. And when they concluded, um, what the dairy farmers and the chicken farmers, these protected industries, had to give up was in order to, for Canada to conclude this agreement with other countries, they had to give up a part of their protected market. And so in exchange for giving up a part of their protected market, which means now more foreign chicken can come in, the government vowed, we'll look more closely at these historical gripes you've had that are causing you headaches. Right. One of which was, is, is the import of the um, broilers disguised as or mislabeled as spent hen. Okay, so this is an emerging market for you. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering too about uh, sometimes technology, it's about volume. It's about creating an efficiency so that, hey, if we get to these numbers or if we can figure out a way to do this test in a way that we can, again, uh, cover a great volume um, at one time, all of a sudden the cost will go down. Do you, is this a technology where you can see the cost of testing going down to a point where it is um, easier 
the path for for these again these people that are saying I care a little but not right. enough to pay, pay that much is that is that technology cost going to go down to create a larger market do you think what a good question we know the answer is yes right of course eventually it's time it's time and and again it's still but even Technology price coming down is not something that happens magically. It's still the nitty gritty of what actually happens to drive that is entrepreneurs like me will say, if I can do some investment to figure out a way to give to make that test half as expensive, I bet you now more people will buy it. So right. again, it still comes down to how willing, I mean, that'll be an incremental change. Someone will figure out how to do it for 75% um, of the price. And if enough people respond, someone else will come along and say, well, I want a piece of that pie too. So mm -hmm. again, it ultimately will depend on how we behave as consumers. And if our insistence to, or, or our willingness to pay more, or more of us are willing to pay more for these things, if that continues, of course people are gonna punt and see that opportunity. And that makes sense. I mean, that's the beauty of the market. The technology itself, in a broader sense, this is about sequencing DNA. And we know that that price has fallen, right? When the first human genomes were sequenced, 95, 96, it was a billion dollar effort. Mm -hmm. And now with the consumer market, right? You take right. your saliva, you send it away to 23andMe. Yeah, exactly. um, it's now, it's, I think it's gonna be very close to below a thousand bucks. So you've yeah. gone from a billion to a thousand in like what, a decade and a half. So yeah. we know these things are gonna be cheaper. So it's, it's exciting to think of, well, wouldn't it be cool if you and I could go out and spend 30 bucks on a little pocket tool and we wave it over when we go to the store, we wave it over the food. Right. And it's like, this is this or this is that. Or again, do we get to a point where all food automatically or all, uh, you know, meat and, and seafood is across the board uh, DNA tested. Can you see that in the future? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. You know, I, I look at something, again, I, I'm very business minded about it, right? Mm -hmm. And when you look at something like Blue Menu or President's Choice, right, massively successful um, efforts of, of, of coordinated, like, let's make, let's head towards this goal, right? President's Choice is going to be higher quality, or Blue Label is definitely always going to be this much healthier for you, or, or organic. I mean, the organic line right. in Loblaws and other stores is also a huge success story. So we will respond. Um, so yeah, if enough people, and you know, it's time for me to probably go back and repitch some of these larger retailers and say, if you want to gamble, and, it, and it's again, it's about something we were speaking about before the, before the tape was rolling, right? If you go and produce some examples where I could show we've done this testing on this food, here are the results of how your, how your target population of consumers has behaved. They are right. moving this yep. way. If there's a way to do that, of course you know they're going to say, I'm in. Anything that makes me sell more products, I'm in. So right. people are going to figure out a way to do that. And I, and I suspect that if our concern about these things continues, it'll happen. It'll get cheaper. Has that happened yet have do we are there any foods out there that have a dna certified label on them yet well that's a good question oh. and if i i have there's a company that competes against me okay um and in fact it was started by some of the guys that were part of the research group at guelph okay and they secured the rights to be the first and therefore only uh provider of a certified this species certification kind of like uh, Marine Stewardship Council sustainable okay. labeling. So they've, they've got this. And um, so yet the answer is yes, that is happened or is happening. Yes. Yeah. So that'll be the, the first test to see does what kind of bump does this are we going to see in the consumer market where they say, oh, 
This is says it's DNA tested. They're DNA certified. Um, okay, I'm gonna buy this a little more because what we've seen is, like you mentioned, Blue Menu. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of uh, labels. We talked about labels last year with a food lawyer named uh, Glenford Jameson last year, mm. and what we learned was that uh, some of these labels are have very stringent uh, certification models. Like organic is governed like you you can't hopefully. slap that on there right yeah hopefully but again that labeling watchdog has kind of faded away yeah yeah so for to to say something especially something a little bit ambiguous like this is a healthy choice right, right? and i'm gonna slow a healthy choice green label on, on every package that really again the only thing that that you have to to prove um to throw a, like a healthy label on there is to answer yes this is healthy and we know it's healthy because it complies with Canada's food guide right because right. that is the official what is healthy um, uh, marker from a labeling perspective as it relates to the Canadian government which what food could not fit into that I don't know mm. right because it's just classification and it's outdated right um, until that changes that is sort of the benchmark so some of those labeling um, groups that you see or some of those labels that you see, like Healthy Choice or something like that, they don't actually really require any research. There is really right. no, the only cost is the cost of packaging, and right? producing that logo. That, that's it, Yeah. right? So compare that versus, again, what you're, what you're doing and now compare the bumps. Are we, how much of a bump do we see when we throw a Healthy Choice label on a house brand? Versus Blue Label, which probably has their own internal mm -hmm. uh, designation of what qualifies, what doesn't. Versus Organic, versus, uh, again, DNA certified or, mm -hmm. or species certified. So that'll be an interesting thing. If When that happens, what are you expecting the results to be? You know, it's a, you raise an interesting topic. And so, in, in good for you for raising the gray middle, right? We frame this conversation in black and whites, where yeah. there's a DNA test that we assume is also binary every time. Yes. Guess what? It's not, right. by the sure. way, right? Um, it, it, it's very, very good, but it's not always perfect. And versus on the other end of the spectrum, just the flakiest thing is like Nutella. Right putting images of soccer players on their on their labels like this is sure. you're going to become a so better soccer player yes. right and so in the middle there are these grayer things like healthy choices and listen i mean it's interesting i on the one hand for sure i we we, we live in canada we hope that there are certain standards that companies have to adhere to in case we're going to get uh, a, a product with something that's a, a, containing an allergen that we didn't think is there all those kinds of things I'm really confident that the vast majority of things that can really hurt us are looked after and are well watched. We're talking about this middle of was it sustainably produced or is it exactly what I think it is when in for you know hundreds or thousands of years it not being exactly what it is is not an issue. We're all fine. I think we have to still own a certain amount of responsibility to be judging what we're looking at, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing you're buying a car, you're buying a house, right? Or Buying a beer just because you're drinking this beer doesn't mean you're going to have a party tonight and tons of bikini-clad girls. I mean, we—it's up to us. And that's to, what the commercial promise. That's what the commercial promise, and this is what the label promised. I'm going to become a soccer player because I eat Nutella, and I'm going to do like all yes. these nonsense things. So we still can't be idiots. We still have to pay attention to the reality of what's going on. And I don't, 
I don't think that we should try and offloading that responsibility to the government or the business. We should still take responsibility for what we're doing. So I think the government is most likely doing what it needs to do most of the time. Yeah, we had Listeria Scare, which is how my company was born, by the way. Okay. We tried to commercialize out of McMaster a new Listeria detection platform that would do it faster, cheaper, more accurately, stuff like that, different talk. Um, so I think in the, in the vast majority of cases, things go well. On this topic, it'll be interesting to see where, you know, where the future lies and, and where it goes. I, um, I think I give away my position as being a bit skeptical on how discerning we ultimately are. Um, and, and I do have a stronger opinion on that when we come to organically produced. Uh, hey man, like we know there are a thousand points along the chain of before it gets to our fork, how we cooked it, right? The mood that we're in, what else we paired that food with, mm -hmm. how it was stored. Did we leave it in our yeah. fridge for three days? How there long did it sit in the loading dock before it went into the cooler? Yeah. Because the, the best before date tells me it's this, but, uh, you know, my dad was in trucking, so he knows a little bit yeah. about this. If that milk stays in the, in the back before it goes to the cooler and it gets up to a certain temperature, that due date is out the window. And if it's spoiled, it's spoiled. But that milk might have a slightly worse taste that might, if it was organically produced milk, might say, well, that wasn't worth the money. Or if it's not, sure. you might say, yeah, that's bad. I'm going to go to organic. And if the standards for the organic, not around whether it's organic or not, but a tighter timeline and a supply chain where they make sure it never gets spoiled, maybe that's actually what you're tasting. You know, that it's better. So my point is there are so many different places for food to taste better or worse or different along the legitimate point chain that we can right. identify and quantify, never mind our own mood and what else is going on in the house or our, our mind at the same time, that I'm very skeptical of being able to tell the difference of, let's say, let's take organic chicken, whether it was produced with chickens consuming grain that never had a certain pesticide on them. Right. Listen, that is a stretch. That is a huge, huge stretch. I mean, I, I get the I get the environmental and ethical reasons why you want to go and try and do that. You want less chemicals. But thinking that we're going to sprout another eye or that we're going to be more susceptible to cancer or something like that, that many steps along the chain, it just doesn't add up. It really doesn't. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> in, in my opinion, people swear by it. Yeah. And, and psychosomatic things. I mean, I, how many times have we like had an ache in our, in, our, in our body and you go online, it's cancer, and then for a week you're sure every other symptom at list, you've got it. Mm -hmm. And you go to your doctor and say, you're an idiot, don't go to the internet, come speak to me first. Um, I'm, I'm talking to myself in that case. So, uh, so yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm fairly skeptical. And yet I shouldn't, there are, there are real cases, right? I mean, you can look at too much lead in, what was it, the Minamata, right? Okay. Uh, seafood disease a long time ago in Japan, where yeah. it was, was it lead or mercury that produced? Not sure. And so, for certain, I mean, I'm a scientist by training, and minute quantities of things can cause problems. We know that, whether it's nicotine or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, but I think that in the vast majority of cases, our food is healthy and good. And So really... The future of your business is not necessarily um, based on fraudulent meat or fraudulent seafood uh, being really bad for people or killing people or hurting people in one way. It's more a matter of, from an industry perspective or a business perspective, protecting your assets, protecting what, you, again, what you're putting on the menu or what you're yep. bringing into the country 
And it's more from that perspective, a business perspective, than it is a health perspective. Absolutely. And I, I think that currently on species ID, I don't think there's enough of a business, enough pull from the consumers to make it a viable thing to give us what we think we want or a certain smaller number of people in us does, does want. For certain, you know, Whole Foods, any of these successful lines or products or companies that have come up that are now responding to the fact that we want healthier food, they're making billions. I mean, that's a beautiful example of the industry responding properly to what we're asking for. And so I think those shifts will come. So it's not unreasonable to imagine that what I'm being skeptical about today could change and it could become viable. But for the time being, the technology that Trent has created and that I help them market we can make a living finding some kind of very painful problem for the industry and helping them solve that problem. The, the really sexy spot that I need to find as, as, a, as finding more business is how can I make those businesses actually help them produce better products cheaper and easier. That's ultimately how you're going to make things go. It's because, again, they want to make it cheaper because guess where what we vote with? We vote with our wallets. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Good yeah. luck. Yeah, really my pleasure. Really, really fun talking with you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that was Brian in conversation with Jeff Lumby, the president of Stericense, a DNA uh, food lab, food testing lab. That's right. <laughs> Very technical. Um, so that was, again, not what I was expecting this conversation to be when we first brought this up. Yeah, neither was it what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. um, I okay. remember the first time I, I talked to him over the phone, what really got me interested was him talking about how he thought this was not a great market, that he didn't see that this is something that consumers were really gonna really cared about, um, and it's I almost mean, we, we've talked about this before, right. right? Again, people will say that things are really important to them, right? But again, as Larry McGill, we keep coming back to farmer Larry McGill mm -hmm. talked about, follow them around in the grocery store, and we're all like this, and we all have our guilty pleasures. You, you have some of <laughs> yeah, yours, right? Yeah, exactly. It's one of those things that I'm never going to identify as someone who needs to go to Red Lobster every now and then. Sure. Um, mine may not be Red Lobster, but I'm sure there's an equivalent that you will never, ever know about live on air. <laughs> um, but it is something that we all engage in to varying degrees. It could be fast food. It could be yeah, something a little more pricey. It could be um, where we grocery shop. The, the sticking point, again, is more so, is this company importing chicken, for example, that is crossing the border um, and getting low tariffs, not having to, to incur the cost um, that Canadian farmers just by virtue of uh, all the varying Well, it's our marketplace, the way our marketplace works, that is a protected market. So it's, you know, you have to pay your way in. If you want to be a Canadian uh, dairy farmer, or if you want to be a Canadian chicken farmer, you got to pay in. So um, the benefit to that is that now you are part of a lobbying group that can hopefully stop uh, this scam th that's going on, where mm -hmm. you have uh, American uh, farmers who don't have the same restrictions right. are able to come to Canada and avoid uh, a really hefty tariff for uh, 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 broiler chickens by just claiming that their chicken is actually spent foul, the border says, uh, border security says, that's fine, you can bring as much Pass of that in here, through, yeah. no tariff required. And then when it gets here, then we have these third-party uh, importers 
that are are now changing the pa- paperwork back and saying no 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 this is actually a broiler chicken so we want mm-hmm. our good our, quality meat yeah and we want to be paid as such and um, really that becomes a really unfair market for for Canadian farmers so now finally here's a way to combat against this again like we said not what we were thinking we're always <laughs> thinking about the consumer and. Mm-hmm. Um, to be honest, the consumer often doesn't think about the grower. No, it really that's that's just the reality. Yeah. How often do you are you sitting in a grocery store thinking, I wonder what hard work went into this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the reality is, people want to pay the lowest cost possible, mm-hmm. and that has a trickle up effect. And that if I am a grocery store manager, or if I'm in charge of buying for a chain of grocery stores, and there's chicken A and chicken B. The um, one is cheaper mm-hmm. and the quality is comparable mm-hmm. and the aesthetic is qu- comparable and they're just as fresh. Then I'm going with this one because guess what? Uh, people, even honestly, even if the quality isn't quite as good mm-hmm. and even if honestly it's not as quite as fresh because people care more about price than they do about quality. Mm-hmm. They pay, care more about uh, price than they do about freshness. Yeah. Now there are some, uh, there are some groups that, and then there are some people who are willing to pay more. We have seen a, an explosion in the organic market. Again, I think it's probably not as big as we think it is. Right. Because everybody likes to say, "Oh, I de- I I eat organic," or "I definitely eat these foods organic." But the reality is, it's probably not every time. Mm-hmm. Like I tried to eat uh, organic greens. It's mm-hmm. something that uh, I've decided is important to me, but do I do it every time? No. <laughs> and sometimes that's a cost base. Sometimes that's a, an availability base, mm-hmm. but y- it's hard to fault the grocery store for stocking a cheaper product when they're being told by their consumers, that's what I want. Right. Right. So we can look outwardly at the big, bad uh, grocery stores or the big, bad suppliers. Right. And um, the lament, the fact that we're not getting the, the greatest quality, but we always have an option to get better, better quality. And almost all of the time, people choose a cheaper product. Mm-hmm. Right. At some point down the r- road, we may see um, a market where um, most f- uh, meat and seafood is DNA tested and the technology has gotten to a certain stage or legislation has gotten to a point where this is a necessary for all meat and seafood. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, it's not really going to touch the consumer, but it still has an important role to play, and that is to protect our growers and our, our farmers mm-hmm. uh, because as consumers, we're not really doing that. No, again, pocketbook will dictate over, you know, ethics, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's it's not just how much money do you have in your pocket. It's where do you decide that money goes? Yeah, for sure. Right. So I don't want to spend money on uh, high quality food, but I do want to get three gigs of data every month mm-hmm. on my, my cell phone plan. And I'm more willing to spend the extra 15 bucks a month on that than I am on quality meat again it's like what we do when no one's watching so perhaps this is going to enter the lexicon now where you're not only are you thinking about health not only are you thinking about keeping it local but if you do indeed decide to go for um, a bigger purchasing things from a bigger supplier you'll be more inclined to be mindful of the of the 
farmer at hand, the politics that are going into the situation, essentially. Um, and that's going to be another way to be PC or something. I don't know. Possibly. I mean, for the sake of our, our farmers and honestly, for the sake of ourselves, it's probably a good thing that we at least start to move in that further in that direction. Absolutely. Uh, and who knows, who knows what these next four years are going to mean. And, you know, we do have to bolster our own economy first and foremost. Yeah. And so on a sheer we, economics level, I right. can't believe you're hearing these words come out of my mouth, honestly. Well, honestly, we're going to be talking um, on this show and outside of it a lot more about uh, markets, about trade agreements, about things like that mm-hmm. um, in the coming months and years. And who knows what, what is on the horizon. But I think it'll be an, a relevant discussion as we move forward in this new, post-Trump world. <laughs> in this or new this, landscape. Right? Absolutely. Not quite a post-Trump Trump world, is it yet? Mm, Post-Trump elect thinking. world. Uh, Pre-Trump, post-Trump, Trump world. I guess it's just Trump world. It's just Trump world. (laughs) He would love that too much. And we've reached the end of another episode of Foodstuffs. Thanks this week. Go to Jeff Lumby of Sterisense. Thanks so much for talking to me, Jeff. Also, as always, thanks again to CIUT. I just wanted to say the CIUT membership drive is on right now. Please support CIUT. It's fantastic community radio. That's right. And also the home of Foodstuffs. You can make your donation at CIUT.FM. Let them know that we sent you. Um, They are a huge part of the reason that we're able to do this. And it would mean a lot for us to all show our appreciation to them. Absolutely. So, yes, thanks so much to Ken Stauer and Eric Betlam from CIUT. And thanks to you for listening. You can connect with us on social media at Foodstuffs Life on Instagram and Twitter and by searching Foodstuffs on Facebook. You can always find us on the web at foodstuffs.life. And subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are Foodstuffs. All right, that's all for this week. I'm Jessica Walker. And I'm Brian Goman. We will speak to you next week. See you next week.